Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. So, uh, yeah, my name is Bart John. Uh, I typically will introduce myself as Bart John, Pilar's husband. Because, yeah, most of you, yeah, that's smart. Most of you either know Pilar better than me, like Pilar better than me. There's probably a better chance that you'll return my call if I say I'm Pilar's husband. And uh, I just noticed that Dale, my mother-in-law, is here. So praise God for that. But it reminds me of the first five years of marriage and why I'm called Pilar's husband is I would call over and I'd be like, Dale, this is Bart John. And she'd go, Who? And I'd go, Pilar's husband. And she'd go, oh, you. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just kidding. She, you know, she was gracious to me. She, uh, she's accepted us into our family. And, and both our families have just melded. And it's been, it's been uh, beautiful. But I do want to say that it is my grandmother, which is her mother, Pilar's grandmother. So it's my mother, my grandmother. It is her 105th birthday this Saturday. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Shoot. That's all it takes to get a clap. So I'm going to bring that up a couple of times. But I want to say that um, you are our family. So next Saturday from like 2 to 5 at our house, you are welcome. That is, Pilar and I are both half Mexican. So my half Mexican side says, come on over. Uh, have a great time. I'm also half Dutch, so that part's just kind of tallying how much this is going to cost. <laughs> Overall, I'm like two, three, four, five, six, seven rows back. No. Come. No, really, come. Don't bring anything. Bring yourself. If you don't think you're going to know anybody, then bring somebody, and then you'll know them. But we would love, love to have you guys um, talk to Pilar about where we live. And, uh, yeah, two to five next uh, week. Okay. So why don't we pray before we open uh, the Gospel of John. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for your gift of your Son. Lord, I just ask you to quiet my heart, um, quiet my mind. And as we open your word, that we see the example that we are to extend your gift, Lord, to all those around us. So I ask you to be with this time and for your glory in your name, amen. All right, so um, before we jump into John chapter 4, I want to talk just a little bit about John the gospel and how it's a little different than the other gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are synoptic gospels. They have sort of a chronological view of Jesus' life. They're very descriptive. They would be like the police report of the gospels. They would say Jesus went here, he did this, he said that, where John's is very, very reflective. And John comes from a place, he is the same writer of Revelation. He has this view of God. He has seen the new earth. He has seen the new heaven. He has seen the Lamb of God on the throne. And he is like, wow, this is Jesus who deserves all glory, all honor, all praise. And so he just, he just sees Jesus in that light. And he starts right at the very beginning, John 1. He says, what in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He wants to leave no doubt 
in the reader's mind who Jesus is. He then ties it at the end, John 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He repeats that again in the first epistle of John, uh, chapter 5, and he says that you may believe, but not just so that you should have life, but that you should have life eternal. John uses that word eternal 17 times in this gospel, where the other, um, the other writers will use it eight throughout, all combined through their gospels. He uses it um, solely to describe eternal life, where the other gospels will use it as a description for life. They'll use it for fire. They'll use it for damnation. Um, John just wants to bring majesty to Christ. He uses the I am statement 23 times in the Bible, in his gospel. He wants to leave, again, no doubt that Jesus is claiming divinity. So for anyone that says, well, Jesus was a good person, but I, I, don't, I can't, you know, I don't think he ever said he was God. They have not read the gospel of John 23 times he says that. If you compare Matthew and Luke, their scene of the nativity, uh, seeing, you know, it, there it's Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and the star and the wise men, where John sums it up in verse 14, the word became flesh. That's all he says. That's his description of God with us coming down, suffering, dying on the cross so that we can have a relationship with him. So however clear it is that John was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, we'll see events not as he saw them, but as he sees them now. Very, very reflective. He'll use things like his disciples remembered or that they did, quite, that they did not quite understand. Um, he'll use misunderstood statements where, like Nicodemus, the woman at the well, which we're going to look at today, or the feeding of 5,000, Jesus will say something and they take it literal and he just describes how... Christ turns the gospel on them and has an opportunity to describe the gospel. So today I want to look at chapter 4. Um, and the Bible's in front of you. That's uh, page 1065. And this is the woman at the wells. The Bible says, uh, or our Bible here says, Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. She is, yes, she is Samaritan. Um, the gist of it, or at least how I remember it from Sunday school, is that uh, Jesus sees a woman at the well. They talk. She's you know, happy, she believes who he is, he runs the town, she runs the town, she comes back, gets all the people, and they all believe. But today, I'd like to look a little deeper and look at how Jesus is reaching out, maybe Jesus' example, as how he reaches out to the morally corrupt, the indifferent, the unchurched, the, those that would probably just dismiss Sunday morning altogether. And before we start, I just want you to think of a group of people that that might describe for you. I don't want you to shout it out. It may be a political group. It may be a group you see a lot in the news. But someone that you just, frankly, maybe you're just tired of hearing about. And you can blame the, the state of morality on them. You could do a ton of things. I just want you to keep that group in mind and just imagine that this woman, this Samaritan woman would be part of that group, right? Morally corrupt, she's indifferent, she's dismissive to the gospel. Um, a little bit about Samaritan-Jewish relationships or relations, they hated each other with a passion. Each of them had a laundry list, a laundry list of good reasons why they hated each other, right? 
Samaria became Samaria, or Samaria sorry, became the capital of the northern kingdoms. When Solomon, the king of David, died, they separated the kingdoms, and Samaria becomes the capital. The thing that they're most known for is never having a good king. So in 722 B.C., the king of Assyria comes in, pulls the majority of the Jews out, and puts a ton of people from surrounding communities right into Samaria. What do they do? They intermarry. They create a hybrid religion, sort of two parts Judaism, eight parts paganism, polytheism. And then when the king of uh, Persia, Cyrus, yeah, the king of Persia, Cyrus, decides to send the Jews back to build the temple, the Samaritans show up and they go, hey, we are here, we're ready to help. And what do the Jews say? Are you crazy? No way are we going to have uncleaned half-breeds like yourself helping us. Don't you even touch our bricks, right? They'll be unclean. So what do the Samaritans do? They get pissed. And they start writing letters to the king of Persia. They start uh, trying to foul up their building. They They get mad back and forth. It goes back and forth. The Samaritans raid a village. The Jews... Uh, violate a place of theirs. Samaritans violate a temple of the Jews. And it just goes back and forth. So the Samaritans, they are the loyal remnant of Israel. And to the Jews, the Samaritans are both racial and religious half-breeds. Today, it would be something like Bosnia and the Serbs. It would be Israel and Palestine. Um, I don't think it would be anything local or as vocal I did see a picture of Pastor Gary and Pastor Derek, and I don't know if that, the Giants and uh, who was it, the Padres, they just would go back and forth. It'd be something like that. I I don't know. Um, But that's how it was. That was the tension that Jesus was going to have as he came into Samaria. So let's read uh, from chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And now he had to go through Samaria so that he, so that he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. And near the plot of ground, Jacob had given his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. So Jesus, man, Jesus now leaves. Thank you. <laughs> Jesus now leaves Judea. If you read in the previous chapter, there's some talk about him or his disciples baptizing on the Jordan River. So they might have even actually been more to the right. But there's three choices that you have in going to Galilee. You could go to the right. You can go to Perea up, which is the traditional route and over to Galilee. You could go to the coast, but would, that would still put you in Samaria. No Jew would do that. Or you could go straight through through Sitkar up to Galilee. And frankly, no self-respecting Jew would do that either, right? The only choice for a Jew, um, if he was holy, was to make a right and go up to Perea. But in verse, uh, verse four, 4, it states, Now he had to go. He had to go to Samaria. The New King James Version says, but he needed to go through Samaria. It doesn't mean forced. It doesn't mean that uh, he had no other choices. It just means that he, he, or that he wanted to go. It doesn't mean that either. If you look at the Greek 
uh, version of that word John, when he uses need or had in the Greek, it means must with divine necessity. It was God ordained. Anywhere you see in the Gospel of John where he uses that word, uh, it's, div- it's with divine necessity. You must be born again. Jesus had, must be lifted up on the cross. John 20, I could stand really still and maybe that won't make the noise. Can I, I'll just put this here. You tell me. I don't know what to do. Can you hear me now? Yes. All right. Can you hear me? No, I won't, I won't keep doing it. Okay. So, so everywhere that, that John uses this word, it's must. It's with divine necessity. It's God-ordained. So if we read this, in the Greek it would read, Jesus was going to Galilee, but he had a divine appointment with Samaria. Verse 5 and 6, he comes to a town called Sychar at the well. It's about a mile and a half outside of town. And he is weary. He is spent. If you saw a a map, a a topographical map, you know, where the mountains and the ranges, this was not a flat route like the Bonita Golf Course. This would be more like Mount Miguel. Come on. (laughs) I was with you all morning. Okay. Um, So anyway, this would not be like the mountainous region. I mean, this would not be like Mount, uh, sorry, like the golf course. It would be like Mount Miguel. I mean, gee. Jesus has now walked 15 to 20 miles over this terrain, and he is tired. He is spent, and it is noon, the sixth hour for the Jews. It's the hottest time of the day. And in verse 7 and 8, we read, And the woman, a Samaritan woman, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? For the disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. And so you have a lone woman. She's by herself, and she's here to draw water in the middle of the day. Two very, very strange things for that time, right? A woman wouldn't be by herself, and she wouldn't draw water in the middle of the day, not if there was a good reason. And in her mind, if you read some of the commentary, she was a shunned woman. She was ostracized by her community. She wanted nothing to do with people that would remind her of her sin. If you read on, she has had five husbands, and the person that she's with is not her husband. So what does she do? That's not the nearest well to town. She goes beyond, and in a time, a day, that she hopes not to see anybody because she wants nothing to do with someone that's going to remind her of her past or of her present. And what does Jesus ask her? He says, can you give me a drink? And when he does this, he breaks all sorts of rules. Not God's rules, but man made rules, right? Had a Pharisee been there, he would have said, this is not a race you should be talking to. This is not a gender you should be talking to. This is not a culture, a race. There is nothing redeeming. This person is a lost cause. Rabbis don't even talk to women in public, not even women of their own family. They only talk to them behind closed doors. There is a Jewish prayer that says, thank you, Hashem, king of the universe, for not making me a Gentile. Thank you, Hashem, king of the universe, for not making me a slave. And thank you, Hashem, king of the universe, for not making me a woman. There is nothing redeeming about this person. And yet Jesus 
reaches out to her. And he doesn't just reach out. This is the longest recorded conversation of Jesus with an individual. In the previous chapter, Nicodemus, who is more like a seeker, and I love how John puts these two stories back to back, right? They're similar, but they are polar opposites. Nicodemus was moral. He was Jewish. He was a seeker. He was wealthy, upstanding man in the community. And then there's the Samaritan. She was not, right? She was indifferent. She was a half-breed. While he was a rule keeper, she was a rule breaker. And yet they're both lost. So as much as we're happy if it's your first time today and we will love on you and that's great, you are more likely to start a conversation with someone if you want to share Jesus. And what should we expect when we share Jesus? Like this open arm reception, like, oh my gosh, I've just been waiting for someone to talk to me. Let's read, let's read on to verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And in the parentheses, Jews have no dealings with Samaritan, Samaritans. So this does not sound like the woman that I was taught in Sunday school, right? This lady is right down dismissive. She's going, look, I know who you are, and I know what you think of me. I know what you think of women. I know what you think of Samaritans. And guess what? I think you know what I think of you. In the parentheses, what John uses is having no dealings with Samaritan. In the Greek, it would be associate or the word associate or the word sugakroamai. And I'm looking at John Kerry. If, if you want to know how to say that word, go and talk to him. He's fluent in Greek, not I. But that word means the sharing of eating utensils or dishes. Jews had taken being clean for God to a sinful level. They were elevating themselves above others. They used the Bible as an excuse to treat others with contempt. They no longer wanted to use the, the, the law to stay clean. They, they created new laws and sub-laws to lift themselves above others. And they took confidence, that confidence in God, and it had turned into pride. In their heart, they had become a nation of Jonah's. If you remember Jonah, wow, there's something going on. If you, did, if you remember Jonah, though, Jonah is this uh, prophet, and God comes down, and what does he say to him? Right? Go talk to the Ninevites. And what does he do? He goes in the opposite direction. He wants nothing to do with that task. Gets on a boat, fish swallows him up, spits him out, and then he relents, and he goes to Nineveh. And he doesn't do it with a willing heart, but he, I got to do what God tells me. So he goes and he probably whispers, repent, repent. And what did the Ninevites do? They repent and God has mercy. And is Jonah happy? Oh my gosh. Jonah, starts, Jonah gets mad, right? He's just like, how dare you? How dare you have mercy on them? I knew, in fact, God, I knew it. I would have told you beforehand, you are a merciful God. So I knew if I would have said something like this, you were going to relent. How dare you? You are only supposed to have mercy on me because I am more lovable than them. Do we do that? Because of their skin color, because where they come from, from where they were born. I, I, I often think it's it's. It's silly, but it's true, right? What does man find most boastful about himself? Things that he has absolutely no control. You didn't decide your color. You didn't decide what country you were born. You didn't decide what race you are, who your parents were. And yet 
wars break out over this thing. I'll say it for myself. I rationalize this kind of self-righteousness to turn my back, right? Make a, make a self-righteous decision to turn my back on the very people that Christ calls us as the mission field, right? The very people that need Jesus. So what is Jesus saying when he's asking for a drink? He's saying, look, I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you're from. It doesn't matter. I want to have a relationship with you, with me starting by extending mercy, right? She's an adulterous woman. They had access to the first five books of the Bible. She knows what the punishment of adultery is. And then he's saying, that's not what I'm here for. I want to extend mercy to you. So some notes about this. One, you are more likely going to be the one starting the conversation if you want to, if you want to share Jesus. Two, this shows us that when we do, let's not use their reaction as an excuse to not do it over and over and over again. And the fact that this is the longest conversation recorded in John with Jesus talking to an individual means that this may take a really long time. It's not an overnight thing. It's not like, well, I, I said hi to them and they weren't responsive, so I'm done. This may take months. This may take years. So let's read on. Verse 10. If, if you knew the gift of God, this is Jesus to him. If you knew the gift of God, you would have asked and he would have given you living waters. Here Jesus jumps straight from mercy to grace, I will give you something you don't deserve. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank for himself, as did his sons and his livestock? She takes him literal, right? She goes, look, don't you know what associate means? It means not utensils. I'm the one holding the bucket and you want to give me water. It's impossible, and you're taking it from my well, Jacob's well. So are you greater than, my, than our father Jacob? So Jesus answers, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will, thirst, will never thirst. And indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up eternal life. Jesus again points her back to the gospel, the eternal that the water you draw from is temporary, right? And that's what it says, verse 13. Everybody drinks from this water, and everybody will be thirsty. But whoever chooses to will have the free gift of eternal life. A note here for John, what he uses for well, for Jacob's well, is farar, which means pit. It is the same word that John will later use in Revelation to describe the pit of fire. And the word that he uses for living water is the same word that John uses in Revelation to mean eternal life or a well that leads to life. The comparison is that man's religion leads to a pit and Jesus leads to life. I think that Jesus is referring to an Old Testament passage of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cistern, their own pits, broken pits that cannot hold water. So verse 15, the woman then says, give me this water that I shall not thirst or have to come to draw water, especially at noon, right? She is still taking him literally. 
just like Nicodemus did over and over again, but she believes that Jesus can provide it. She says yes to Jesus, but she says it in a way that she wants him to provide for her now. And uh, I don't know why this made me think of this, but it, it's like the old drinking fountains, right? We have a great drinking fountain, by the way. You hit it, and it like spurts water. It's, it's awesome. It's cold, but it made me think of, of a school I used to go to, 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. This was an underfunded school, a small school. We had like 120 people, and it had one drinking fountain, and it was a dribbler. You know what a dribbler is? It's like you would turn it, and it would just like, Maybe it would get out a little bit, and then it would just kind of pour down. And every day at 11.30, 12 o'clock, because we didn't have our own field, so they'd have us run like two miles to a park and then two miles back, and here we are, like 15 seventh graders getting in line to this drinking fountain, and the first guy goes up, and he turns it, and of course it's dribbling, and I'm like eight, nine back. I wasn't a fast runner, and he's, you know, you can just tell, right? Each person gets closer and closer to the drinking fountain, and then what do they do? I know, it's gross, right? <sighs> I'm not even sure this is the right analogy. I just think it's a funny story, but it's gross, right? And who does it, right? They just kind of go, uh, just stick their mouth on there. And then there was this kid named Timmy. Oh, my gosh. I don't know why. Oops. I shouldn't hit it either. He's really Tim. He was a big guy, sweated more than any of us, and he was like two people ahead of us. And we didn't have any showers. So what does he do? Right? He kind of takes the water. Yeah, it's gross. I know. But that's what life is without Christ. That's a stretch, but still. <laughs> it's any religion, right? It will keep you wanting. Like you couldn't get enough, right? You could sit at that drinking fountain as long as you wanted, and you just never felt like you were getting this crisp, cool water. This was not a waterfall. It's just a dribble. So where are we looking for satisfaction in life? And when we look to Christ, are we looking for him to just solve our today problems, right? Our earthly problems. For me, having Jesus in my life does not stop bad things from happening, but it changes your view from the temporary to the eternal. So now Jesus, knowing that she's not quite getting it, goes from that to having a grace-filled conversation Lightly sprinkled with salt. He says, go call your husband and come back. So what does she say? I have no husband. And she stops right there. She knows, she knows that she's hiding something. And of course, Jesus knows that she's hiding something. So what does he say? It is true. You have no husband. You've had five. And the one that you're with is not your husband. He shines a light on her sin. But it is not a barrier to sharing the gospel. But do we do this with our sin, right? We kind of make it a non-sin or a partial sin. And what does she say? Sir, I see that you are a prophet. She, she doesn't quite repent. She doesn't deny it. But she also doesn't want to talk about it, right? What's verse 20 say? Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. She'd rather argue. People will do this when you start talking about Christ, when you get a little bit uncomfortable, right? They'll bring things up. Go, well, I don't know. You know, there's so many churches, so that's why I don't go to church. Or, you know, there's so many different versions of the Bible, or the Bible says this, or the Bible, I don't really quite understand. And don't get reeled in 
Jesus doesn't get reeled in, right? What does he say in verse 21? He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So in verse 25, she breaks down. She says, I know Messiah is coming and when he comes, he will tell me these things. And then in verse 26, Jesus declares, right? He looks at her and says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. In the Greek, it would say, I, the one speaking to you, am. I am. This is an, an I am statement from Jesus claiming divinity. The author of John has said Jesus is God. John the Baptist has said Jesus is God. His disciples have said Jesus is God. But the first time that Jesus chooses to reveal himself as God the Messiah is to a Gentile, a Samaritan, a woman, a sinner. And so then it clicks. Verse 28, she leaves her water jar. The woman goes back and tells the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and made their way back to him. She leaves the very source of life for her and runs to town. A heart being transformed by Jesus can share Jesus with joy and confidence. So how are you sharing the love of Jesus? And what I mean, though, is that for Jesus, our sin is not a barrier for hearing the gospel because of grace and mercy. He offers it as a free gift to all. Ephesians 2, 8 says, salvation by grace through faith alone. So if your sin isn't a barrier for the gospel, why is someone else's sin a barrier to you? We look at verse 39, and many Samaritans of that city believed in him, and because of the word of the woman, he then stayed with them for two days, and many more believed, and then they come back, right? They come back to the woman, and they say, we believe that this man is the savior of the world. This woman who shouldn't even be talked to, this woman who is ostracized by the very people she's been ostracized by, they go back and they feel the need to report to her and say, thank you. Right? Your change is changing us. So how are we bringing, how are we bringing this to others? How are we bringing this to our community? If Jesus had to go to Samaria to save one disinterested, unengaged sinner, an undesirable by many accounts, Jesus had to die on the cross for her, just like he did for you, just like he did for me, just like he does for your kids but just like he does for the Samaritan woman and the group that you're thinking about. He loves your neighbors and your grumpy co-workers just as much, not more, not less than he loves you. So what gives us the right to hold back the gospel just to those that we want to see in heaven? I went to a Bible conference a couple of weeks ago and the big theme, which I think is prevalent in Christian circles, like Christian bubble, we talk about, like, what are we doing with us compared to society, with this ever-shifting move of morality? What are we to do, right? How are we to react to non-believers? And she basically gave four choices that a Christian has. We can ignore them. We can look down on them. We can go along with them, which is very dangerous. Or we can engage 
with them with the hopes of transforming. Now, let me make something very clear. It's not you that transforms. It is the Holy Spirit. That is not our job. Our job is to create relationships with people with the goal, gospel intentionality, of being able to one day share the gospel. Right? So how are we doing that? How are we? Do- I mean, we can be the most seeker-sensitive church, and when somebody comes through those doors, we can just put our arms around them and love them to death. But I think it has to happen outside these walls. It has to happen, like I said, with your neighbors and your coworkers. It has to happen with a community of people that may never come to church, with people that maybe you wouldn't regularly hang out with like Jesus did. And I'm not saying we don't do this. I, I like these God stories we had a few years ago where I think it was the Heaths and the Bolts, they opened up their garage and they had apple cider on Halloween and these neighbors. And it was just a really great community event. And I know of a, a gen- in fact, I can say his name because he's here, John Matthias. Like he, he drives Uber, right, in the morning. So he's got people for like 40 minutes. And it's just to him, he says, that's my opportunity to listen to them. And if appropriate, I say, can I pray for you? And he goes, no one has turned me down. I mean, isn't that awesome? There's a, another gentleman, Harry Langford, right? His, his mission, he goes, I love to let people in in line at Costco. Now, I don't know how that works for the other 20 people behind him. <laughs> But he says, look, when you do something like that, that, it's just an open opportunity to start a conversation, right? He does it with a simple question, just like Jesus, right? Jesus starts with, can you give me a drink? You can say, how was your day today? It's as easy as that. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I just ask that as we look around South Bay, as we look around Chula Vista, as we look at our neighbors, we don't look at them as labels, Lord, that we look at them as people, and that we don't even just look at them as people, Lord, we look at them as your children, your children that you loved so much, that you suffered, you died, and you rose again, Lord. May our confidence in your salvation, may it not turn into pride against others, Lord. I thank you for all this and to your glory. Amen.